Hello, and welcome to the Philosophical Angle Podcast with your host, author Chris Angle. Hi, this is the Philosophical Angle Show, and I'm your host, Chris Angle. I'm the author of four books in philosophy, and uh, one of which is The Philosophical Equations of Economics. And uh, they're uh, available free for uh, viewing uh, at our website, philosophypublishing.com. Along with me is my co-host and panelist and uh, and good friend, uh, Rick Samuelson. Good to see you, Rick. And you. Rick graduated from Yale and Wharton and is a venture capitalist out on the West Coast. And the purpose of the philosophical angle is to examine the nature of concepts being used in current media. And this week we're going to discuss the totalitarian, um, uh, why uh, totalitarian governments must try to steal technology. Uh, there was a headline on the front page of the New York Times on October 16th, and uh, I got it right here. It was entitled, uh, The World Once Laughed At, North Korea Cyberpower No More. And it's by David Sanger. Oh, it was October 15th, I'm sorry. And, um, <clears throat> and it claims that North Korea tries to hack for a punitive military and and tries to steal technology on a regular basis and the at the times reports the according to this article that it uh, it's getting good at it uh well this caused me to remember uh that the Soviet Union also tried very hard uh in stealing technology from the US and other western countries uh when it was the Soviet Union so uh then uh, then it came to mind that uh, present-day China uh, also participates in this a- activity rigorously. And it would appear uh, that uh, we could make up a preliminary conclusion that it seems that totalitarian governments in general have a proclivity to steal knowledge and, and particularly high technology. Um, so we got to ask ourselves, why would this be so? Rarely do we see it the other way around. That is, Western countries or democratic republic countries do not in general try to steal uh, technology from other countries. It's possible that it exists, but nevertheless it cannot be to the same degree that the totalitarian countries proceed uh, in this this arena of activity. However, uh, it may be that some individual Western corporations try to steal technology of others, but even here, I, I think that's uh, there's not much concrete evidence, and they probably do not do it much, as the motivation for it is is really nil. Uh, when you compare the risk reward ratio of it, the uh, the risk is very high in being caught, and uh, the uh, and, and thus the penalties that would come with it, uh, even if caught by the U.S. government. Uh, so the the rewards are are small and the risk is high. So I I don't I don't I see the motivation for it being uh, close to zero. So why it, would it be that the totalitarian regimes have a tendency and proclivity to steal technology? So let's explore this today. Well, as it turns out, there's a reason why the proclivity develops within the totalitarian nations to steal technology and it is that the nature of the direction of knowledge within societies 
deviates from an efficient manner to an inefficient manner uh, with these totalitarian utopian type societies. Uh, there are three types of totalitarian states. The first type is the classical uh, king and queen scenario. Uh, the king and the queen and their relatives and their top enforcement cadres have total control and they own most of the means to production. And this scenario was prevalent throughout most of history. Uh, in this king and queen monarchical situation, the, the king and queen try to own as much as possible the means to production and they made it such that society's purpose was to make the king and queen and, 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 and company, uh, which are the nobles, As, much, as wealthy as possible. Uh, and they did a pretty good job at it. In olden times, the means to production was, for the most part, the land. And so the king and queen and company owned most of the land. You can still see that in, in modern-day England, where the, uh, the king's family, uh, the queen's family, pretty much owns a, a tremendous amount of land, even today. Below the king and queen family and the landowners uh, that supported the king against uh, foreign rivals were the serfs and the peasants who tilled the land and along with them were the merchants and skilled tradesmen that, that make up a middle class. Uh, the second type of totalitarian government is the king and queen type plus an ideology and this is the one that is most prevalent in today's world. That is totalitarian plus ideology and these governments are, are driven by ideology first and foremost, uh, such, as by, such as by the ideology of communism. Let's call them so, uh, totalitarian utopians. The third type of totalitarianism is the benevolent dictator or dictators who cares, not, cares only for political power and allows, allows for the people to enjoy an economic freedom. And this is rare. Uh, if non-existent uh, today as as well as in the past. Of course, there are types of governments that are mixtures of these types. And uh, an example would be the present-day Russia. Uh, Russia, uh, an oligarchy with the very top profiting from the very big corporations. And uh, and below that is a, is a middle class that is free to pursue its production of goods and services. And maybe we could put China somewhat in this category. With the totalitarian utopian government, such as China or North Korea, its economy does not develop as fast as the benign totalitarian nor as fast as the uh, democratic republic societies. And this is because of the curtailment of freedom by corrupting the direction of information information and knowledge goes from individual to the government bureaucracy and then comes back to the individual causing a potential for the knowledge and the information to become altered and, and corrupted. In free, free societies such as uh, in a democratic republic freedom exists to a greater extent and as, and as such information travels directly to those most concerned. But at this point, I should point out that we mentioned freedom, so we need to define it. 
so let's define freedom as is the creation of, of priorities and the effectuation of these priorities. Uh, first, there's individual freedom, whereby the individual creates his priorities and, and then carries them out uh, to do whatever he wants to do. And then there is a, a societal freedom where individuals with the same priority come together to cooperate to effectuate a mutual priority. And the priority will be a good or, or a service. These are the regular companies that we see in everyday economics. Uh, people banding together with the priority of producing a good or service to, to sell into the marketplace. And, and these individuals or cooperative company situations, uh, in these situations, the information and knowledge created internally by the individual or individuals with the priority of making the good or service stays within either the individual's mind or within the propriety of information and knowledge of the cooperative company. So uh, in a in totalitarian, utopian type of government, the individual's information must travel first to the government agency or agencies for processing uh, before it is returned uh, to the individual or to the groups of uh, individuals or to the company for uh, effectuation, uh, which would then produce a, a good or a, or, or a service, some sort of product. The problem here is that the governmental information processing is very inefficient. First, you have to travel outside of the individual or outside the company to some other place for authoritarian consideration on the way there or at the place of consideration, which is exterior to the individual or, or exterior to the company, the information can become corrupted, curtailed, or altered, or, or even stolen. And thus there's a, a huge potential for the information to return to the company or to the individual not in its original form or, or even not return at all. Uh, in these authoritarian situation, production of goods and services become further inefficient because the number of individual creations of knowledge, you know, otherwise known, we would call it creativity, the individual creativity to produce a good or service has to flow to a central government processing place. And as the information grows and flows at a greater speed, and as the profundity of the knowledge increases uh, into, a, into a centralized government processing place, the centralized place cannot handle all the information coming from the societal members because all the societal members and their brains and storage facilities for information uh, and knowledge is, is much greater, deeper, and profound than the, the centralized government uh, or the totalitarian uh, utopian place of, of storage and processing. They're not going to be able to keep up with what's happening within the minds of, of all the people of, uh, uh, within that nation. Uh, therefore, uh, free societies can produce and handle its new information, which is used to create its, its goods and services much faster and, and more efficiently than, than any utopian totalitarianism. Because because over time the, the utopian totalitarian government uh, will see that it's falling behind in its production of knowledge and technology, uh, 
its natural reaction would be to go to the free society and try to steal it to, to be able to keep up. Rick, what do you think of all this? Well, I would point to one other issue, and that is uh, the rule of law. Um, because if you steal somebody's um, technology in, in the United States and Europe and any other um, republics or democracies, um, you're risking food. Um, and that is costly. And that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, corporate espionage is, is, has occurred in the United States um, because of the risks it, it tends to take a subtler form. But any, at any rate, um, in a competitive economy, you're going to have that phenomenon. Um, that said, uh, you know, punitive damages and so forth can, can run very, very high. Those uh, checks and balances uh, don't operate to nearly the same degree in a place like, uh, certainly not in Korea, or North Korea. Um, and even uh, China does not have the kinds of checks and balances. And beyond that, the government um, owning shareholdings in so many companies, um, it's, it's a much more mixed picture as to whether it's private individuals who actually control a given corporate entity or its government or some combination of the two. And, um, so it's, you don't have the, the strict delineation uh, amongst competing parties, frankly, competing corporations that leads to the kind of competition and checks and balances that you would find uh, here in Europe or in some other locations. Um, where the rule of law prevails. Um, and without the, without a market economy, you're never going to have, which attracts, by the way, uh, the intellectual assets and ha has the resources to pay for the intellectual assets required to develop valuable technology. Um, you're, you're never going to have a totalitarian state uh, that can hope to compete uh, with what with the information and, and the technology generated by um, a place like the United States or even Europe um, in the absence of, of that kind of dynamic. Uh, now, China China has successfully um, adopted, stolen, adapted. Um, and um, developed technology from the West very successfully. Um, one of their best methods of doing this is through their foreign students. In other words, the foreign students studying in the United States. Um, I have one friend uh, who worked at Los Alamos, um, and you, you, know, you would think that there'd be some sort of policy in the United States, not to have Chinese, you know, doctoral students working at Los Alamos. <laughs> but they do. <laughs> and he, he says, that, you know, his suspicion, he could never find hard evidence of it, his suspicion is that they were, um, there was an agreement when they came over to the United States um, 
they would receive funding for their education or some portion of the funding, and the understanding was they would bring back technology um, as part of the quid pro quo. Um, I, does that surprise anyone? Of course not. Of course not. It's almost inconceivable that China could have developed as quickly as it has in the absence of uh, stealing and or adapting and or adopting uh, technology from the United States. Um, we, in our infinite wisdom, of course, have supported that by accepting as many Chinese students as we have in the name of um, you know, monetary benefit, because they tend to pay more than local students. A quarter of the class at University of Washington is Chinese. Now, this is a state-run school, okay, a big school, a very big school, not as big as Ohio State. It's a big state school. A quarter of the students are foreign Chinese students. That is an astonishing statistic. And how did this come about? Obviously, they pay more, so they're welcome as a, you know, from a financial perspective, but under the, under the uh, rubric of uh, ever greater diversity uh, and internationalism uh, found at the universities, uh, it's thought to be, you know, good policy. Um, but that we have, you know, continued problems with theft of our intellectual property shouldn't come as a surprise, particularly with China, which has such easy access to U.S. educational institutions. So you, did you say that there was an actual agreement in place between Chinese students and uh, and the Chinese government for that uh, are the quid, and the quid pro quo is the actual uh, payment of money, and for that uh, the students will funnel back information on the uh, high technology this is this is the understanding um, not for all Chinese students we're coming over here to study art history you're not going to sign an agreement like that but uh, or even if it's not signed there will be no understanding of that effect but the Chinese government does support a number of high-tech um, students here in the United States and this does go on. There's no doubt it goes on. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, thanks very much. And that concludes our uh, this segment of the Philosophical Angle. And we'll see everybody next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us on the Philosophical Angle podcast. Be sure to subscribe and join us for the next installment.